0: Hello and welcome to episode 3 of The Artful Manager and thank you very much for the many emails that we've been receiving. In this episode we have another three questions for you to ask yourself and these will focus on the people issues that you have to deal with regularly. So, question 7 Am I prepared to act to make the corrections I feel are needed on the team? Several years ago, I joined a large UK organisation and met up with my future colleagues on a four-week induction programme, and as we got to know each other a little bit better, we started to talk about our lives at home and our previous jobs, etc., and I particularly wanted to find out the reasons why my colleagues had decided to switch employers. For the majority, it was either that they didn't get on with their manager, very common, or that their talents were not being fully recognised, very common. One of my new group was called Keith. He was about 30, and he proudly told me one evening in the bar that he'd been offered every job that he'd ever applied for. I guess he he kind of expected a congratulations, a, a well done from me, so I think he was a bit dismayed when I told him that I was sorry to hear that. Why are you sorry, he asked. I told him that he had never really established his most natural employment level what rung of the ladder was his best fit. Only by failing to secure several positions would he come to realise he didn't have the skills, the knowledge or the experience needed, and gradually he would come to know the level which was most appropriate for him, because well, doing a job that doesn't require your particular talents is not fulfilling, but neither is a job which demands a level of expertise that you don't possess. Because Keith had never failed, He could have been operating well below his potential. Not applying for jobs which you think are above you is a mistake because failure is important. It's important in life generally because only by knowing failure can you fully appreciate success. (laughs) James Dyson developed over 5,000 vacuum cleaners that didn't work before hitting the jackpot. So take a moment or two now to visualize you and your team Who do you think is operating at about the right level? Who's performing above or below it? You'll then have three lists. Those that could do more will leave you at some point for more rewarding work. And those that need a little bit more support will continue to struggle until you or them make a decision. And it's never too soon for you to make a decision. But what if you have two superstars who fail to get on with each other? they conflict. Yes, a dynamic tension should kind of exist between colleagues. A little competition between them can be a good thing if it's not carried too far. But if it is, hostilities become damaging to the team's output. This situation can also happen when there are so-called personality clashes. Others on the team may take sides and if the situation worsens, cliques and factions will form and team morale will be severely undermined, so what do you do? Obviously, you will speak to the people involved privately and confidentially, of course, and tell them that you want a harmonious team and that they will need to sort out their differences and quickly. Now, at first, this should be a firm but cordial warning, but if the situation persists, even for a short while, then we recommend that more of an ultimatum needs to be given. Now, this type of conflict has actually occurred to me a couple of times over the years. And rather than a direct, full-frontal approach to those involved, I used a slightly softer alternative, which I want to tell you about. I told them this. I love you both, but the same conflict situation that we have now occurred at a customer I knew very well at senior level a while back. The CEO, very large company, had two direct reports at board level who failed to heed his warning about the need to make peace, and he fired them both. I believe he did the right thing. The relationship and behavior between both of you and the damaging effect it's having on the team is totally unacceptable. Please don't make me follow the CEO's example. It worked on one occasion but on the second, one of them got another job fairly quickly, but conflict ended. I believe the alternative of firing just one risks creating both winning and losing factions within your team, and that could be well a recipe for continued low-level disharmony and a more permanent lack of team spirit. But by firing them both, the output of the team may suffer temporarily, but you make it clear to the rest of the team that you will do firmly with anything which threatens or weakens the focus on team performance, that extra 1% that we talk about. Dealing with conflict is hard, and I've spoken with several very senior executives who admit to ducking the conflict issue. Would you be prepared to act coldly and dispassionately for the good of the team? Figuratively speaking, some people may need a good kick up the backside to draw out the best of them, while others need simple encouragement, a pat on the back, to achieve the same response. Kicks should always be delivered in private, confidentially, and without emotion. I've known some in management positions, both male and female, fortunately few, who sometimes get angry and raise their voices. Unless you're shouting, Fire! Get out of here! An admonishment is best delivered in a calm and neutral voice, because as Marcus Aurelius said in Meditations, it isn't manly to be enraged. Sometimes you can use the stick or the kick without saying anything at all. Imagine that you've arranged for your team to visit another site and told your staff that the bus or buses will leave at 11 o'clock and not one minute past. Then you must leave at 11 o'clock precisely, leaving perhaps one or two behind to catch up at their own expense. The whole team learns that you mean what you say. But don't get too exasperated when some people don't respond the way that you had expected. I always remember the advice given by Marcus Buckingham and Kirk Kaufman in their brilliant book, First Break All the Rules. They said, people don't change that much. Don't waste time trying to put in what was left out. Try to draw out what was left in. That's hard enough. Brilliant. During all of the development programmes that my colleagues and I have delivered, we have said to the participants that they should feel free to raise any subject they want to for detailed group discussion, and to make them more comfortable discussing sensitive issues, we could have asked everyone to agree that anything that's discussed within these four walls should remain within these four walls, the so-called Chatham House Rules general murmurings of agreement and the nodding of heads would have followed, but that was never enough for us. To try to ensure compliance, we'd asked this, do you agree to keep the opinions expressed during our discussions and the identity of the person making them private to this group? And then we went around the room and collected a yes from everyone in turn. Now, That may sound very pedantic, but there is a proven link between what people say and their subsequent actions. Robert Cialdini, a professor at Arizona State, calls this consistency. Saying yes out loud in the presence of colleagues cements and strengthens their commitment to deliver what they've promised. So rather than saying this to your project manager, please tell me when things start to go wrong Instead, say, please, will you tell me? Immediately, you start to fear that the deadline or the costs are under threat. With their yes, they have made a commitment to you, and I bet they will stick to it. Ask, don't tell. Raphael. Thanks,
1: John. So now on to question eight. This question asks, am I ready to replace those team members who might be holding me and the entire team back. Why are we asking this question? Well, we often think we have to address this question when we are at that annual appraisal time. When we undertake appraisals for everyone, that's when we sort of think of who is performing and who might be underperforming. However, my colleagues and I are not at all convinced by these annual exercises, at least the way that they're currently done. They tend to generally acknowledge strengths just far too quickly, sweep them under the rug, and then a lot of time is spent by that manager, senior or middle on so-called development plans for the soon to be improved skills of their employees. We actually believe that that model should be reversed so that it supports more effort to improve the strengths of your team members even further, even if that comes at the expense of the weaknesses. Why is that? Well, if you have a team, The point is you can allow others to compensate. That's why your team should be a mix of knowledge, skills, experience that we discussed in episode two. Think of professional sports, football teams, whether that's football in the UK or football in the US. All of those teams contain specialties of expertise. You think about the offensive talent. What's their purpose to score goals? What about the defense? It's to stop those goals. So when you have a team, you can compensate for the weaknesses that any individual member has, but what you can't do is replicate their excellence. It's also true that this same principle applies to nations, not just team members. This is why David Ricardo, the famous economist, came up with the term comparative advantage. It was basically telling countries that even if you're better at producing everything, you should still trade with another country. Why? Why? because they might be relatively more productive in something. And if they specialized in that, they'll produce more. And if you are relatively better in something, even if you were in absolute terms better at everything, you should still specialize in what you're relatively better in. You will produce more too. So the whole of those two societies that are now trading with each other actually benefit. That's the idea of comparative advantage. Well, you can apply that right to your team. Some members are really good at one thing, keep at it. In those annual reviews, focus on that and tell them to get better. Other team members are better at something else that that particular team member might not be so good at. Tell them to focus on that. Your job as the manager is to put the right team together. All right, so let me ask you, what do you deem to be your greatest strengths or strengths? Let's just suppose for a moment that you and your superior, your boss, have agreed on what that is and that a score might be awarded and that score turns out to be nine out of ten. Well, 9 out of 10 sounds great, but what we're asking you to do is to think about how you could achieve next time around a 9.1, 9.2. Why? Because you want to get to that 10 out of 10. Now, this isn't going to happen overnight, and it might mean that you have to invest more in yourself, maybe some courses, maybe a summer school, maybe even ask your boss for a sabbatical so that you can invest time learning about the things that make you even a better expert in whatever that area might be. And if you think about it, what it is a, a kind of world-renowned expert, where do they come from? They come from having honed a discipline or an area of activity and become the best at it. And I would think that even inside your organization there's a lot of exceptionally talented people who just maybe have failed to put the commitment in or who are busy trying to correct their weaknesses and aren't becoming that recognized champion that they could be. And it's sad because we sometimes look back at these individuals and we say with regret that this person failed to realize the promise they showed so early in their careers. I think part of that is because they haven't been told by their mentors that they needed to focus on what they did best rather than always focusing on what they were doing less well or poorly. So we're asking you to please think carefully when you next review any of your team members because why these team members might be future stars and if you can give them a leg up by focusing on what they're great at i think they'll always remember it and you will be a better organization for it now the delicate part of this of course is you don't want to always show favoritism to those that are the best um you do need to spend more time with those better performers than your weakest however and even though that sounds counterintuitive like we were saying before the chances are that those star performers, those high effort, high ability workers can increase their output faster, their quality can rise higher than those with more modest effort and modest ambitions or capabilities in your organization. And if you start spending a disproportionately high amount of time with those that are the weakest performers, either because they're showing not that much interest or have a low effort, you will need to think seriously about eventually having to replace them on your team. And you should do this sooner rather than later. This is because that kind of effort, constantly trying to motivate the lowest performers, just drains your battery and those of your team members. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's the truth. When some critical skills are in short supply, I know that managers sometimes keep these low performers on the payroll. Because even though they might be operating at 50% of their required effort, they, they stay on because, you know, Raphael, it's better to have a warm body than no body at all. That's the typical response that you hear. Well, we couldn't disagree more. Again, why is that? Because the effects of that decision has huge repercussions on the remainder of the team that is high performing, that is working hard they see perhaps more vividly than even the manager or yourself as a higher uh, level leader that the person in question is actually a marginal contributor, not quite good enough and really holds the rest of the team back. Some of those high performing team members may go on to question, why is the manager keeping him or her or they on the team at all? They might be saying to each other, why doesn't the boss do something? But the main danger is that they see the manager accepting the suboptimal performance and low output from one individual, and now the rest of the motivation for the entire team may suffer as well. I don't see why I should be working this hard when the boss keeps John on the team. He contributes so little. Sorry, we're picking on John here today, but uh, that's not what you want to hear from your staff. And if you're tolerating just a warm body on your team, you could be undermining your own authority at a time when you need to be pushing for that extra 1% from everyone who's already working hard and delivering on their promise. Now, compare and cross your team with a successful sports team. The analogy we used before about the football uh, team, whether it's the UK or the US football we're talking about. In those instances, those professional franchises are are always looking, the coach, the manager, always looking and searching for that extra 1% as well. And how do they do that? They're always bringing in fresh talent. Um, Even the most established players always have to worry that there's someone else who might actually be doing the job better. And how do they find this talent? Well, they employ scouts. Think of that as your HR recruitment arm. They search for more effective and hardworking players to put on those teams. So they're always thinking of that composition of the team, getting the balance right. They're kind of never satisfied. And when you have a competitive environment like that in which performance is so transparent, Fear of losing is this great, great motivator. Now, we recognize, though, that one of the hardest things to do as a manager is to let one of those underperforming employees go. It's sometimes perceived as an admission that a mistake was made at the selection level or that the manager's ability to motivate workers is lacking. But let me tell you, you can rarely get rid of someone who is ill-suited to a job or a culture too soon. Indeed, by waiting too long, you not only hurt your organization and that individual's prospects of finding more suitable employment. And that's really key because if that employee is not working hard, it might not be because they don't have potential. They just don't fit into the organization. They're not happy. Maybe they're working too far from home, and that long commute has just drained them of the energy. So the sooner you can intervene to help that person find a better job, you should. So when you finally decide, after much soul-searching, to upgrade your team, and steel yourself to tell that one colleague, a friend even, that they will need to find alternative employment, we definitely sympathize with you. It's never easy. But when you do have to let someone go, the remainder of your team will bear close witness to your words and deeds. That layoff may not surprise the team, but it will always come as a shock. And that's why you have to treat that process with the fairness and the respect you treated your employees while they're working with you. You, of course, need to offer the pay that is needed, uh, whether that's severance or the notice that every worker needs to find that alternative employment. You need to call uh, an outplacement service if you don't have one already to help that individual find the next job opportunity. And when that person's departed, you need to call your team together and explain your actions and the reasons behind them fully. And the reason is simple, because the remaining team will have two questions burning brightly in their minds, although they might not put them into words. Why this person and why now? Now, the person you let go didn't become a bad performer overnight, and some of your team may even remain friends with these people long after they've left. So you really have to have a protocol and obviously follow the employment law that's applicable, but really the aim for your remaining people is to acknowledge that you undertook this process professionally, with care, and with sensitivity. And, of course, during this process, you'll need to be building up a short list of possible replacements. Now we spoke a lot about recruiting for difference in the previous episode so we won't go over that again but i really needed to reinforce how important it is to get that balance of talent and effort on your team right and why we have to focus on the excellence both within a person's role don't focus on their weaknesses focus on what they do great encourage them to do more of that fill your team with the balance that's necessary because obviously with every greatness every aspect that's excellent there might be a deficiency But don't try to take that person and have them work on the deficiency. Hire someone that compensates for that on your team. And everyone has to be rowing in the same direction with the same effort. If there's someone who's not, that's when you have to intervene for the sake of that individual so that they can find a better opportunity somewhere else and for the sake of your team. Well, John, I think that's it for question eight. Now it's back to you. Thank you, Raphael. Kevin, over to you.
2: Hi, there. Thank you, John. Um, And yeah, it's great to be doing this podcast with um, my good friends, Raphael and John. Um, So I've been given the question number nine. um, How can you be sure that the culture of your team is is helping you to deliver results? And I I guess, you know, when I got this question, I I thought to myself, there's so much there, not least, what is culture? and um you know i think to answer the question we really have to have a sense of you know what culture means to us so in academic terms i think culture might be described as you know the way we do things around here uh, the norms the practices the behaviors that just seem normal to us that seem you know to be deeply held in in the workplaces the families the homes the the cultures that you know the national cultures that we live in but to unpack what a culture is i think it's important to think of where those norms might come from and if you think of us as a as a species as a you know a, you know as a human species we have you know deep within us things called values and these values are things that we hold as as important and you know with those values come you know behaviours and after those behaviors, we have a set of norms, and after those norms, we, we build into this idea called culture. So there's this, there's this chain that links us between you know, values, um, behaviors, norms, and cultures. And unpacking that really is at the heart of answering this question, or just giving yourself permission to have the, the conversation about what are the values that lead to certain behaviors. We often jump to conclusions. Um, so I wanted to take you all back to time when I was um younger than I am now uh I'm now 51 to a time when I was around 31 and at, at that stage I was I was made head of my department um and you know being a young 31 year old and if you are 31 you listen to that um you are young um but being at that age I, I took it as wow this is a notion of success i i've got to lead this department i'm this must be success and what i hadn't taken into account at that stage was that coming into that role there would be a huge amount of expectation on me and some of that expectation would be appropriate some of it would be inappropriate but much of it had to do with culture what do people expect from their leaders um and I found myself leading people who were much older than me, people who were professors, and they had a sense of how I should look, how I should behave and how I should be. And I had come in with the presumption that, you know, because I was the leader, um, people would follow me. So I think this, this idea of just understanding that culture is there, it's unspoken it, it, and it lingers for a very long time. So there's no doubt that culture is something which takes a long time to change. Um, A few years ago, I I was lucky enough to go and see Shalom Schwartz speak at the um, World Psychology Conference in uh, Paris. And, you know, being there was was amazing. I mean, Shalom Schwartz is, you know, the godfather of of values theory and, you know, behind this whole idea that different cultures reflect values and values reflect culture. And I went to go and listen to him in, in this packed room in, in Paris. And he talked about this link that I've spoken about, about values and cultures. And and his view was that the, the cultures that we have are often an expression of values that have become salient or pertinent at any moment in time. So they're often a reflection of a trauma in society. The values that become important are often the things that are uh, were important in our culture at any particular moment in time. So let me just give you an example of of my father who just recently uh, had his 82nd birthday. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, lucky to still have a dad and and we were all there as a family having my dad's 82nd birthday party. And we ate a lot. One of the things we ate was a fantastic cake, a chocolate cake with um, pears in it. And we all sat and ate there. And we ate a lot because one of the rules in my family is that if you get served food, you should eat it all. And it's a mark of respect. It's a mark of, uh, you know, uh, a good behavior if you eat all your food. Now, if you could look at me, which fortunately you can't, you'd probably be able to tell that I I shouldn't eat all of my food all of the time because I could probably do with losing a a couple of kilograms. But I still did it at the age of 51, and so did my brothers, uh, you know, one older, one younger than me. And we did it because of this unspoken rule, this culture that we've got around, you know, doing, being good boys, doing what we should do. If you trace back the rule in the family and where it came from and and how it came about, it may well be that that rule is in our family because... Uh, you know, my grandfather fought in the Second World War. Food became something which was scarce and valuable. And therefore, to show respect and kindness, you ate all your food. And that that value came out in the trauma of those times. And just to lived on in our culture and our family rules to this day. So I think... In asking yourself, is is the culture of your team fit for purpose? Is where did that culture come from? What time was it developed? What trauma was it in response to, if it was in response to a trauma? And what does it mean? And just having the ability to to break down the difference between values, behaviors, norms, and cultures gives you a conversation. You know, being respectful might mean something very different in my culture to your culture being respectful in you know uh, a communal culture like a a japanese culture or a a chinese culture is often about you know showing an elder respect not necessarily um contradicting somebody in a in a public setting um whereas if you went to a country i, I do a lot of teaching in denmark very direct culture you know, I'm a professor in a room, but I'm often challenged. And that's that's a mark of respect, that challenge, I, I think, in that culture, because they feel free and able to do that. So this idea of of is a culture fit for purpose, it's it's being able to think through where did that culture come from? What problem was that culture trying to solve? And how can our current situation be used as a way to to rethink and reset the culture? But Unless we are able to talk about it, then that chain between values, norms, um, behaviors and cultures, it's very difficult to do. Um, when you're looking at culture, I think one useful thing to do is to ask yourself, you know, what three words describe our culture? It could be something like, a, and, you know, we we value people, we value relationships, we value kindness, we value performance. And then to think about how do those words translate into behaviors and norms and if, if you can do that i think you're in a situation where you're able to start to think about is the culture and the associated behaviors are, are they fit for purpose when you're looking to look for categorizing culture you know it's useful to think of you know cultures which some cultures are, are networked where you know you might value relationships i know that you know the organization i work with uh, and in Henley business school is often you know very much around networks relationships are important if you want to get something done you need to know the right person to talk to and and getting that person involved in your in your work is is key and i think that for me was one of the key things you know over the covid years when you know I recognized that having worked in my organization for many years, I'd built up the relationships that I needed to get things done and to to help our students and to help our clients, even though I didn't have those day-to-day relationships in those times. And, you know, people who didn't have the same length of, of relationship building maybe didn't have that advantage. So I think, you know, Network cultures is one way. Another culture you might think of is, you know, if you're like a profit-oriented culture, which places you know, value on an outcome more than a person. But in any culture, any moment in time, we're capable of valuing different things. And the four key categories are, you know, is it, is it valuing something or a culture about learning and education? Is it a, a culture around conserving or protecting something important? Is it, is it a culture around you know, transcending the self, you know, about those networks, those relationships? Or is it a, a culture all about, you know, your own achievement or success, which you might call that sort of profit-driven culture? So, you know, in answering the question, I think it's, it's absolutely key to, to go back to think to yourself, you know, what is this culture in behavioral terms? Which values does it relate to? And... Where did it come from? And if you can have that conversation, I think with yourself and your team, you're much in a much stronger position to, to answer the question. So thank you so much for that. We're going to hand back to John now. And uh, I, I really look forward to uh, contributing to the next podcast. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Kevin. And thank you for listening to episode three. Please let us know how you get on when you try out some of the strategies and the recommendations that we ask you to consider for your particular challenges. Email Cross at isalon.com. Kevin, Raphael and I wish you well. Thank you.